of Los Altos Institute's uh, 13 Lectures on Original Doctor Who by Stuart Parker. Uh, these episodes are being made available as a free service by our institute. They include uh, both a lecture and question and answer session for each class. However, you may find the question and answer sessions are a little choppy because part, some participants have requested that their voices and remarks be removed. First of all, um, here's, here's really, we're really at the crescendo of the golden age of Doctor Who here, because K-9 is associated with that period, and we've got a lot, and in this, uh, in the Pirate Planet, of course, uh, and to a lesser extent in Stones of Blood, they bother like coming up with a special adversary for K-9. So this is probably as, uh, as much as they feature uh, the robot dog as a uh, real character rather than merely a plot device for solving problems. Um, so that's one of the signs we're in that golden age. We also have the other of the Doctor's Companions who was trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I looked up RADA today, and for the past uh, 114 years, the school has been running. It has taken in 14 students per year, the most uh, seven male, seven female. So that's... uh, so it gives a sense of uh, so they're 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 pulling these companions from the, the most elite uh, formal acting in uh, Great Britain, United Kingdom. Uh, that's a sign, and to go with these really really strong female leads, we see much more of a second wave feminist sensibility in the companions, right? No one screams for a really long time uh, in, uh, in the late 70s, right? Uh, when John Nathan Turner becomes the producer, um, Lala Ward's Romana has to go back to screaming. But even then, she only screams in like the last two stories she's in. So we see these strong female companions, first one being, you know, this uh, Amazon and then the next one and a half being the doctor's peers, being of his people, uh, and therefore able to fix the TARDIS. They know things about him. And the fact that they've heard of him, uh, that he's not a mysterious figure, is I think a very important element in rebalancing male and female authority in the show one realizes how much 
the doctor's mystery and lack of information about him is a source of his power when they choose um, women who like, you know, know of him as like a notorious minor public figure uh, on their, their home planet. So that's, um, that's another feature of this sort of most elaborated point in uh, the show. Uh, we see, um, uh, we see these um, female characters who, these are not maternal feminist figures. They're not really third wave feminist figures because they're good at the same things as the doctor or better than he is at those things rather than having a different sphere or mode of being good or great. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a feature of the second wave, much more of a focus on women's ability to step, the, the idea of getting rid of the idea that roles are gendered rather than trying to rebalance gendered spaces and gendered roles. So that's another thing we see strongly then in this golden age of the show. Uh, we, um, and we also see them, uh, we also get to see the doctor being made insecure. Uh, we see that right at the beginning of Stones of Blood with him coming back into the console room and saying, Romana, I've decided to find out where our de next destination is after she's told him to go into the console room and find out where their next destination is. And so um, again, we can see that there's a pretty radical rebalancing uh, that takes place in the show between 1976 and 79. Uh, and, you know, in many ways, I wish that they had um, studied these years of the show more when they wrote Jodie Whittaker's Doctor in the present. I think there are lots of opportunities um, for, uh, uh, I think Manoa made a really good point um, in an early discussion in this class about how Jodie Whittaker's doctor is the only doctor who so constantly second guesses themselves and wonders if they've done the right thing. And, uh, you know, that this is a way of, of performing the doctor in this other gender. We see none of that here, right? We see that the blustery confidence of Baker's doctor is met with a kind of withering, precise certainty in response. And say, I know you would, yes, you would usually get away with just saying this, but no, you're, you're not getting away with that. And there's a, there's a specificity in the way the Romanas respond to uh, these things in dialogue. Uh, for me, one of the things that there, I'm going to do a fair bit of comparing this to other shows, to this, uh, this sequence of Pirate Planet and Stones of Blood, to further sort of bring out uh, the way that they're handling themes that appear consistently, but will look different in other seasons. So uh, again, we have, um, we have in Stones of Blood, a bunch of plot elements that we found in uh, Pyramids of Mars and in uh, the one we did watch, uh, Talons of Wang Chang. 
So this is the zenith of the secularization thesis. So we're not just showing like mythological spirits and leprechauns to not really be. Um, we're Scooby-Doing actual gods here. We're, we're tearing off the masks of the gods themselves. And, uh, you know, be they Chinese or Celtic. Uh, I think that's, um, and you can see that there's a difference if you go back a couple of years and you look at um, uh, pyramids of Mars where, oh no, the Osirens really are the Egyptian gods. There's no mask to tear off. There's nothing to expose. And so um, that's, a, that's a difference here that... Um, things that think they're gods or that we think are gods and really aren't, you get in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, before the show goes back to sort of middle positions about these extraterrestrials being godlike and absurdly powerful, as you see in the demons at the beginning of the Pertwee era, or as, um, as you see in, uh, in creatures like uh, the Malus late in uh, the Davison era. So we've got, um, so that's, so that's a distinctive feature. Uh, the, um, <clears throat> what's really interesting here, what will not be true in a few years, I looked at the dates here, could, what would a story set in a Celtic stone circle have looked like five years later? It would have looked unrecognizable because of the rise of the alignment of neo-pagan movements with this nascent eco-feminist perspective that Marilyn French puts forward in 1983. Uh, whereas, so what you might see in a later or earlier season, again, what you see actually just a little bit earlier in image of the Fendal is um, this, uh, this sense that the old ways, the old women, there's some knowledge there that, you know, we, um, um, we shouldn't make fun of these superstitious rustics that in fact, they, they have important knowledge. Um, and those superstitious rustics, you know, are often women. You get to this show and the superstitious rustics are men. And the, um, that it's the men who are subject to superstition. And then, and in particular, when he's talking about um, this male order of druids, the doctor does something that again, you, you see in this very short period, he, his dialogue changes to be more like the professors. So one of the interesting things is they get, what's her name? I was, I'm forgetting names all the time now, but, uh, woman who plays Professor Rumford is a hugely popular actor at the end of her career, chooses to go on Doctor Who and sort of slum it on this sci-fi show. She's part of this set of cameos on the show that show up a fair bit in the Douglas Adams years. And, um, uh, and so her character speaks a particular way. And if you notice the Doctor and Romana talk more like her the whole show than they do in any other show. And one of the best examples of that is 
the doctor talking to Mr. DeVries about the historiography of the Druidic movement. He's not talking about the history of the Druidic movement, which is what the doctor would normally do. The doctor would make a set of sweeping assertions about the Druids, claim to have met a number of them, and then the conversation would be over. But instead, the doctor chooses to challenge uh, the Druid leader by saying, well, actually, no, Druid, uh, the modern idea of the Druid was developed um, as part of like Victorian antiquarianism. It was made up by, it's a fiction made up by the Victorians, um, which is true of most of our beliefs about the English past uh, and really the past in world history generally, the Victorians made up the idea of the Romans salting the soil in Carthage and all kinds of other wacky shit. And uh, just whole cloth made it up, claimed to have deduced it. Here we see the doctor historicizing things in a way that he doesn't which is especially striking in that it's a, it's a program about history. Yes. But he's making an argument about our perceptions of the past and the past itself. And he's interested in the archeology span of both of those things, the perceptions of the past and the past, because he's trying to show that this, this group of Druids are just cargo cultists uh, of, um, of this, this sort of Victorian antiquarian idea. So um, that's, that I think is a cool element of the show. We don't just see strong performances by the central characters. We see higher quality actors coming on as the weekly adversary. And we see strong performances out of them that have to be matched by the doctor and his companion. These much more sort of forceful uh, performances, especially because they're furiously cutting the number of extras and various other things to be able to keep affording their locations budget, which is <laughs> what they're slashing spending to, uh, to hold on to. That'll culminate in their trip to Paris for City of Death. Uh, now, um, one of the things that, uh, so when we think about the trajectory, uh, that feminism takes, that women's roles in society take after this, um, we enter the 1980s, which is associated with these, uh, Joey, go ahead. Okay, uh, just earlier you were wondering who the actress was. Uh, it's Beatrix Lehman. Thank uh, you, she, Beatrix Lehman. And she died about a year later after doing this. Oh wow, I did seventy-six. Not. Yeah, and you look at her filmography; it's stunning. She's um, Beatrix Lehman's uh, quite the heavyweight. So, um, one of the things we can uh, so one of the big questions in the nineteen eighties, right, is um, whether we categorize the 1980s as the birth of third wave feminism primarily, or whether we categorize the set of social processes around gender politics as the backlash. So now, of course, there's a degree to which both of these things are concurrent. 
that feminism is moving both forwards and backwards at this time, and that women's rights are moving both forwards and backwards in the 1980s. But, I th but for me, I, I tend to hold to the position that we, we live in hope of a third wave, um, that the two big feminist waves are measured by material outcomes in society. And you can't, you only see material outcomes for maybe the top 10% of society uh, if you want to argue there's a third wave based on how the third wave is dated. That for the bottom 90% of women in society, you're in the backlash. So there are various, we have to work to track all the different ways that this, this period of extraordinary possibility was narrowed. And I think one of the most interesting ways is looking at the possibilities within the feminist imaginary. So how, how can we imagine, uh, how do we imagine gender in other times and places? How do we think about that? Today, we have a really standard formula for what passes for the feminist imaginary. Um, if we look at mainstream television, if we look at um, particularly superhero shows um, we, uh, uh, and the like, uh, we look at speculative fiction, um, whether we set a show in the distant past or in a, a, an alternate present or in a distant future, um, the way we choose to represent female possibility is to imagine that um, uh, that um, the society is much like ours and that a number of plucky young women uh, decide to challenge the things that women are always challenging uh, to do with patriarchal authority, but that they somehow have more exciting tools for challenging it. Uh, you know, whether those are superpowers or technologies or any of these other things. Um, what, we, what we see less and less frequently are attempts to imagine societies with different gender balances, different gender distributions of power, things like that. That in the popular feminist imaginary, while the female individuals keep getting more powerful or significant, um, the descript, um, what we choose to imagine is in a narrower and narrower band that the kinds of society, uh, the, the, the ways we could possibly re resolve issues around sex or gender are so similar to what it is that we live with in the present. Um, in, now, these shows don't especially seek to foreground uh, a feminist imaginary. We'll talk about that in other shows that do a good job of that. Um, well, the show that immediately, um, well, the show that uh, follows one year later than, um, uh, than Stones of Blood is Creature from the Pit in which uh, there's just some beautiful dialogue. It was hard not to put it in. What do you call this? We call it the creature. What do you call this? We call it the pit. Oh, you have such a way with words. Uh, it's, uh, 
it's great stuff. Um, but it's very easy for people to imagine a matriarchal society. And we don't even have to treat the matriarchal society like they automatically have to be good guys. Like, you know, in American TV in 1978, there weren't a lot of black villains. That was like, they just started putting black people in heroic roles that imagining black people as villains was giving them too much range. Uh, so we do see in these episodes, even when we're not trying to depict a whole society that is organized along different gender lines, we still see these little smaller snapshots um, where things are being organized differently in the present. Vivian Faye is your main villain here. She's an unapologetic, scenery-chewing villain, um, <laughs> you know, who feels a little bit bad about maybe having to kill her friend, um, you know, but she's tremendously self-possessed, right? And uh, is like having a great time being who she is. And the same with Professor Rumford, just there's this moment very early where um, Vivian Faye criticizes the doctor for behaving in like a shitty male way. And um, Professor Rumford's response is great. It's like, why are we wasting time talking about this? Why, I, of course he's going to do that. Let's get on with the thing that we do. Uh, we're not gonna have a confrontation because I'm in charge of this dig. I don't give a shit what happens to that guy. She will later, but off she goes. It's like, oh, another man has run off tonight on Who Cares? So I think, uh, I think that's also, even when you see a little micro universe of like six characters, in this period, you see a different horizon of possibility in terms of who women can be, um, whether at a macro or micro social level. Joey, do you, is your hand up from before or down or? That was from before. Oh, okay, I'll put it down then, I guess. I, do I have to do, oh, okay. Um, anyway, all very confusing. Uh, so, uh, hi Manoa. Hi, Edward. Uh, you guys okay? Fine. Okay. Yes. Um, ish. There we go. Uh, right. So I was talking a bit about Horizon of Possibility, Creature from the Pit. Um, so one of the ways you can show an interesting Horizon of Possibility here is, we, is imagine them making this show after the rise of ecofeminism, after Marilyn French leaves radical feminism. Um, well, Marion Zimmer Bradley starts writing around, uh, writing her Avalon series about four years from now. The, uh, uh, we have uh, Beyond Power three years away. We have Chalice and the Blade nine years away. What we would expect in the 80s is um, the Celtic goddess to be good, to be like on the side of the earth. Um, we would expect that her servants would be persecuted women, not powerful men. Um, 
And we would expect that the feminist aesthetic would be to accentuate the precision and the beauty of the stone circles, that we would accentuate the wisdom of ancient times if we were dealing with these themes, the wisdom and artistry that women have had as their, their thing for generations. But no, Vivian Fay is like, a grifter and a criminal who is fooling people into thinking she's a Celtic goddess. Um, there's, there's no sense that we have to legitimate the Celtic goddess. Like Vivian Faye is powerful because she's fooled a bunch of idiots uh, who are mostly men into powering her robots uh, or de facto robots. And again, instead of the stones being sacred and whatever, we throw them off cliffs, we blow them up, we do all kinds of stuff that uh, we'd be much more likely to wince at in the 80s. We'll see this again in City of Death with the show's um, desire to relitigate Walter Benjamin's point and go, no, there's no aura of the original. We'll just have a new survey with a new number of stones in the circle. <laughs> and um, we're gonna do that survey with reason and measurements. And why shouldn't the women be doing all of these things? So I think Stones of Blood is a great feminist text. I think Pirate Planet to circle back around is, well, it contains pretty much everything Douglas Adams has been try tried to tell us over the course of his life. Um, it's a wonderful, it's what speculative fiction is for. You use a metaphor that tells more of the truth than reality can. And obviously Zanak is us. We're those people. We live on this planet that lives by destroying everyone else's world. That there are all of these worlds, we destroy them all the time. And the thing that lets us do that is twofold. It is ignorance and emotional distance. And between those things, the desire to not know what's at the bottom of the mind is powerful, right? The lack of curiosity is a thing that Adams always contends is, you know, is highly destructive. Um, the, uh, the other part of it, uh, the other part though, is the emotional engagement. And I think that in many ways the, the pirate planet is, is, uh, is very wise on this front. It tries to teach a lesson that we should have learned decades ago. And um, we have, um, we have, and, and we still won't learn. Um, so uh, obviously with Douglas Adams, you're seeing a higher quality of script writing, even when he's slumming it. And there's, so right away you see there's a general structure, which is nothing, everything is the opposite of what it seems to be. That's one of the rules in the pirate planet. So um, the kind of man the captain is, the kind of power the captain exercises, the kind of power Queen Zanxia has, the kind of person Queen Zanxia is, all of the captain's relationships with his courtiers 
And then, of course, there's how everybody looks, in particular, the Mentiads. And it's, I just love that encounter. Oh, are you the Mentiads? Well, it's just that you looked rather like Mentiads to me. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's a lovely, uh, lovely meeting. And of course, it turns out that the Mentiads are the good people. But what's interesting is that the Mentiads problem is they're experiencing all of this ecological grief, but they can't actually connect it to what's happening. And this is true of everybody on the pirate planet. So you have the Mentiads who know that something truly terrible is taking place, that they're participating in this mass murder, but they have no sense of how the mass murder is being executed or even fully who is executing it. Um, then you have people like Kimmos, the populist, right? Who knows he's being lied to. He just has no idea who's lying to him or what they're lying about. Uh, but he, he knows he knows something's being pulled over on him. And you can really see, like, this is one of the things about that should show us something really sad about who we are today is that in the 70s, if you met people who were confused and incoherent with rage, um, you would expect that they would be socialists, right? That they would sort of incoherently support like a socialist project because look, there's this angry economically, there's this angry person who's alienated uh, and so of course they're going to be opposed to the captain. Of course they're going to be opposed to this order. And we just know intuitively that they're on the right side. Today, of course, uh, in progressive discourse, people who have those instincts are viewed as deeply suspect, likely to become QAnon or Trump supporters. If people are just angry and they don't know why, and they're men, uh, then that's... Uh, then we're frightened of them. And uh, we don't see that their rage and alienation is pointing towards justice. Uh, so I think um, Kimmis, as much as he's drawn in a very blocky, simplistic way, I think that's part of the point. Um, that even by the standards of his own people, Kimmis is probably stupid. He's probably been trading on his looks his whole life without knowing it. Uh, so, um, so we know that, that Zanak is us, that we're the pirate planet. And so we have this problem and ultimately the solution to all problems in this episode comes from a single thing that we have to historicize a little bit. Um, in every age, certain kinds of pseudoscience are popular, even, you know, and this was true in the age of reason as much as it is today. It's just that we described all of our pseudoscience in scientific terms. So it was easy to sort of figure out how it worked or didn't work. So the great pseudoscience of the 70s is the gestalt. Right. Um, the gestalt is, um, I, I promised to never not do this in this course. I think I'll do it once. 
Um, I think that if you want to understand how this magic idea called the Gestalt embedded itself in 70s society, I think our current revisions of how sex and gender work are a great thing to compare that to. You could see how easy it is for something adjacent to science to be absorbed into soft sciences and then travel up the chain into the medical profession because Gestalt therapy was, was practiced and prescribed not just by psychologists, not just by unlicensed practitioners, but by psychiatrists, by people with MDs in psychiatry. Uh, Michael. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the word gestalt. What does that mean? Okay, so um, a gestalt is a hive intelligence formed by people's spirits. Uh, Carl Jung premised uh, much of his refutation of Freud on a piece of pseudoscience, which is something called the collective unconscious. It's the idea that somehow our unconscious minds are connected in a way that physics doesn't represent. And the gestalt um, is this way of, of turning that into a medical pseudoscience. So people would have gestalt therapy in which you put all these people together in a room not to talk to each other, but to produce a gestalt through this unknown form of communication that was gonna happen between their bodies. So you, there was a lot of interest in group therapy in the early 70s, and a bunch of it lifted off into gestalt therapy in the late 70s. <clears throat> So while Doctor Who is doing all kinds of admirable things that we look back on from like the 20th century, uh, the 21st century and go, look at these 20th century people and their idea of what the place women could have in society. But at the same time, this is probably one of the worst Doctor Who episodes for signing off on pseudoscience because the use of the gestalt and the idea of the mentiads would not have been seen by the audience in the 70s as being like a little magic-y, a little woo-ish, things like that. They would see the gestalt as the hardest science in the show, not the softest science in the show. The mentiads would be the most believable thing. And uh, that... Um, uh, and so it's important, often we can just look at these shows with our present day eyes and make very good guesses about how the audience is receiving them. I think without the knowledge of 1978-79 being the zenith of Gestalt pseudoscience, um, I, I, I think that we, we miss that here. We don't see how much crunchy science Douglas Adams has put in the show because a bunch of it turns out to be pseudoscience in later years. Um, now, of course, the Mentiad's motivation to rectify the evil precedes their knowledge of what the evil is, just like Kimmos. And so one might expect that um, uh, this is a raising awareness show that what these people are short of is information, they get the information and they act on it. But instead, 
Um, the argument, the show, exactly. I felt a disturbance in the force. Perfect. That is, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, but what's interesting is that the Mentieds think this is reasonable, that you build the outrage and the ability to, uh, to respond before you figure out what you're fighting that finding out what you're fighting last is a reasonable way to go. And you'll note that nobody tries to raise any awareness. Like the, the planet is based on a terrible secret, but nobody in the show thinks that telling regular people who don't already give a shit that the, that the whole thing is, that their whole, that everything about them is a crime and the most, one of the most monstrous crimes in history, they assume that if people aren't already awake to that at an emotional level, nothing intellectually is going to awaken them. And I think that that's quite a striking thing about, uh, I think views that I've only come to in recent years, I think Douglas Adams has consistently propounded that and that, that has a lot to do with the, the choices he's made in terms of persuading people. Um, you know, Douglas Adams' greatest act of persuasion is his show Last Chance to See, the nature documentary of the species that will be extinct that you can't do anything about. It's already too late. And uh, Last Chance to See is very much about awakening in people this sense of grief uh, as opposed to giving them useful information about what's happening. And we see that again and again in, um, in Adam's other work in all kinds of places. Uh, now, the, um, the other thing that's uh, swirling around this is, um, the idea of planetary consciousness, planetary energy. Um, James Lovelock has come out with the Gaia hypothesis at this point. And so, um, again, it's interesting that all the, um, that uh, um, it's interesting that the Mantiads are a male order. Um, you don't see any female Mantiads. And, you know, I don't think that's like a brilliant progressive gender choice, but I do think it shows some of the horizons of the feminist imaginary. That if you have a movement of people who don't want know what's going on, but have a lot of feelings about it, the idea that they would be all male and none of them would be female is <laughs> inadvertently a little bit amazing. <laughs> like that's a gaffe you could only make in the late seventies. Uh, you know, you go later and confused feminists would demand representation in the feeling. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, so I think that's, that's also uh, pretty good, interesting stuff. So anyway, that's my, my 45 minutes. Now I'm going to, um, insert a break into the class uh, and briefly visit the laundry room. I'll see you back here in uh, five minutes. Yeah, I, I was really surprised by 
how much I enjoyed the Pirate Planet again. Mm -hmm. I had seen it, you know, 20 years ago. And it was, the dialogue is so silly, but in like a witty, enjoyable way. And Tom Baker really seems to be enjoying the heck out of himself. And the <clears throat> captain is such a great blustery um, shithead who in the, in the final reveal is just a powerless puppet. And that's really great. But for some reason, when I watched Stones of Blood, I thought it was one of the worst episodes I've ever seen. Not because of the themes. I liked all the, like, the structure and the idea. I thought the execution was fucking terrible. Like, there was a scene. Okay, first of all, the moving stones, awful. Very bad. There, there is a scene where three quarters of the way through and the stones have been wandering around and Romana and the uh, professor are in the cottage and they're figuring out, you know, plot twists and then one of the stones is like attacking the house and canine alerts them you know the stone's coming and it like crashes through the front door and Romana yeah. literally turns to the camera and goes I think we look look out we better run and it was <laughs> delivered it like it was like the worst like it was almost like she thought it was just a rehearsal or something. Like she was just doing a read through. It was so fucking bad that uh, by the I was like glad this episode ended. I, I I thought the I don't know what was going on there, but it was really weird. And those two floating lawyer judge things and the energy beings. Yeah, I I, I just I didn't dig it at all, mm. which kind of surprised me considering how silly the story was and I usually like the silly stuff. I think part of what they're trying to do here is capture what they regard as an authentic Welshness about the setting. Yeah. The Welsh are phenomenally litigious. So the idea that you defeat the Celtic gods by taking them to court actually almost makes sense in modern Wales. Okay. The Welsh are constantly suing the English, demanding their ancient rights of one sort or another, usually completely fictional ones. It's hilarious. And English lawyers routinely trade, almost like baseball cards, <laughs> records of Welsh legal cases as memes, because they're hilarious. But wasn't okay, this shot know. in uh, southeast England in Oxfordshire? It might have been. Um, and I think it was supposed to be set in, in Cumbria or something in the north of England. <clears throat> but, but at some point, for instance, Vivian Faye is holding a, a, a teacup and it's a Port Marin teacup. So it's a Welsh product. It comes from the village. Right. right? These, are, these are products that are sold at or adjacent to the Port Marin Village Hotel. Um, so they're, but they're very, very high-end, floral decorated. Um, uh, oh, another prison, <clears throat> another prisoner tie-in. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. kind of, but geographically, but and and but, um, you know, so so they're definitely situating these people as culturally Welsh, even if they're in England, and and involved in, in all in all sorts of Celticism. <laughs> 
including probably the pres- the production of The Prisoner, because I think Beatrix Lehman was in The Prisoner. I think she was um, she was yeah, number she two was. in the second episode of yeah. The Prisoner. Uh, one of the episodes. I don't think it was the second one, but yeah. Well, certainly early Definitely. Yeah. There's also something about her um, th- that, that sort of academic, uh, the academic pettiness of her character, which is I find also found very entertaining. Oh no, it's it's exactly right. I mean, I, I have her, you know, her, her big takeaway at the end of all of this is that I'm going to get to resurvey the stones. And <laughs> that bastard who upstaged me for that for that job I wanted is going to be confounded. And yeah, look, nation is a mountain she's climbing. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that early scene when uh, you're in the stone circle and Romana shows up and the you know, all the four main players are finally together and then the doctor leaves the scene and the professor's first response is like, fucking typical man, leaves a <laughs> poor lady who just met these strangers here and he's wandering <laughs> off to waste a bunch of time. Let's do something practical because we're the only smart people that are going to get anything done and he's frivolous. He's a frivolous, useless person, which yeah. I thought was hysterical. And that whole scene is played out around Romana having the wrong footwear. The wrong shoes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which which I, I, I thought was maybe was he trying to be too clever by half? I don't know. But I love that her original shoes are just like standard, you know, high heels. And the alternative she chooses are even bigger, like <laughs> yes. platform boots. <laughs> that was great. More practical. Going back to the principal, uh, the prisoner, actually, the person that was the number two uh, wasn't actually <laughs> Beatrice. It was uh, Mary Morris. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. Looks similar. Especially oh, with the short hair. Right. Yes. That's okay. That makes sense. And of course, she was younger. Yeah. yeah. Of course, the number two in the second episode was Liam Curran, of course. Yes. Who comes back a couple of times? Yeah, in later episodes. Yeah, he's in the last couple. I also really loved the moment when they first arrive at the circle, and the professor shows up, and she starts in on on some long anecdote, kind of assuming that the doctor has a bunch of information that he doesn't have, and she's sort of going on about all this stuff, and the doctor's just sort of looking at her. Um, because that's exactly what the doctor does to people all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, <clears throat> I, I know, I know when people in Scotland who are exactly like her is the thing. Uh-huh. So no one elderly genetics professor who is <laughs> pretty much identical you know, yeah. personality and looks to Beatrix Lehman in this show. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's delightful. And yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's it's very entertaining to see the doctor being, you know, sort of treated exactly the same way that he constantly treats other people and being confounded by it. Yeah, in fact, I was surprised he was confounded by it. I was expecting that actually she did remember seeing him. Mm. And he'd forgotten some previous time when he had been doing something. Because he could have been, right? I, he, 
Yes, it's true. He, he very well could have been delivering a lecture and whatever it was. I just had a thought about Mintiez. Mm -hmm. um, you had said, Stuart, isn't it weird that that they're guys because they're you know super in tune with some kind of uh, how do, how was it that you phrased well, it? What I what I said was that their emotions are their guide. Uh... I thought that the reason they were all male is because um, they're, how do I say this? They're, they're specifically all men because uh, men would be more in tune to what's happening on the pirate planet, which is resource extraction. Well, except so the Mentiads are not in tune to what's happening. They're in tune to the grief it's causing. Yeah, but it's yeah. resource extraction. So you have a bunch of dudes in there. But it's not the resource extraction that's causing the grief. It's the, it's the death of the, the living beings that they're reacting to. It's the life force that they're, that's calling out to them. Because of course we discover that the minerals of the planets are uh, mostly all still there, because of course they're um, they're looking for like five pounds of something and crushing a whole planet to get it. It's um, so so yeah. I think that um, I mean there are definitely masculine tropes they're going for. They're going for Buddhist monk, right? Buddhist monks, the thing they're aesthetically evoking. And there's a lot of, you know, horse shit in various journals at this time talking about how Zen Buddhism contained the idea of a gestalt, which it did not. No. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of like um, people who've skimmed Daisette Suzuki who are writing articles at this point about the gestalt. So it drops in nicely, right? People have those images of the Buddhist monks uh, self-immolating to end the Vietnam War at this time. Um, so it's not like there's a lack of sort of, of symbolic and other tropes to, to draw from for this being an all-male group. But I think it's more the discourse about it being having emotions about death rather than the discourse being using mystical power to understand the bad thing that's happening. Uh, which, um, you know, the, the Mantiads can visualize things, but the visualizations are, they're perceptual, but they don't have an explanatory component. I can see a thing, but I don't know what it's for. I can see a thing, but I don't know what it means. Um, okay, so uh, I imagine that folks on the call have all kinds of things they want to say about these two shows, and so I think um, I'll look at the people who've already turned off their mute buttons. So that's Joey and then Alana. All right, well, I think someone already mentioned it in chat, the force. So th the fact that this comes out a year after Star Wars, uh, there's a, some similarities to it, too. And you see, for instance, the guards can't shoot the broadside of a barn. And, <laughs> you, know, when, you know, when they're dealing with the, uh, uh, in these chase sequence, um, they basically uh, can't shoot any of these guys. And they're also easily tricked. And like in Star Wars, uh, they can have 
they can be manipulated by uh, the, the priests, as in uh, the Jedi's. So the uh, uh, uh are able to um, overpower the guards in, uh, in many different ways that are similar to the story of the Force in Star Wars. So um, at that time, and I, and I remember 1978 quite well, uh, Star Wars was everywhere. It was every. It was part of the popular culture. So um, it would, you'd find it in other programs like this. Um, and that's not to say that uh, George Lucas wasn't in tune with things like Gestalt uh, and Gestalt psychology, because that was, again, also quite popular in the 1970s when he was also still kind of active academically too, to a certain extent, or just finishing off uh, working at UCLA. And, and regionally popular, right? Yeah. Los Angeles is the center of both things. So I think... Um, yeah, there's de- there's no question that there's a gestalt idea, whether it enters the show directly or indirectly. I think you can make a strong case either way. And I I absolutely think that your explanation is simple and economical. Um, I'd forgotten how much fun the pirate planet is. I, uh, I, I managed, I've managed to uh, drag my roommate Dominic into watching... Um, some of the Doctor Who with me, and uh, as a big Douglas Adams fan, he really enjoyed the Pirate Planet, so that was fun. Yeah, it's it's, and I thought it's actually really interesting how sophisticated the environmental message of the show is for the era. Yeah, they, they, I don't know, they now it just seemed it just seemed very much on the cutting edge, um, which was which is quite interesting. Well, you know, I, I, I certainly have found that, like, I have certainly experienced a lot of grief uh, over the decades um, about the Omnicide, but um, uh, really it's only in my current romantic relationship that I discovered there was a whole vocabulary for that grief. Uh, and that, 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 and yeah, I think Adams is... Uh, yeah, he is he is pretty far ahead of the um, the sort of the foregrounding and anatomization of, of the grief. I think that what it shows is the degree to which the people on the surface are highly insulated, that the information they get, the trinkets they get, are all yeah. actually being selected, like which gems are being dumped on the ground is being selected, that uh... no one goes down the mines no one ever directly confronts the means of production. Um, The means of production are all obfuscated, which is why you have, you know, these really high levels of alienation and what's the, the new term? Disarticulation, right? This is a completely disarticulated society. And so... You have these, uh, you have all, you have this populism and this revolutionary spirit just boiling there, not because of any material lack, but because of total alienation, total disconnection from there's the food, the, of- the, the, the minerals, anything. And there's, there's the, old, of- the old guy representing, we don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Everything's fine. Well, what's the old man's critique of Queen Zanxia? She stripped her planet mm-hmm. of the resources, their shared planet, 
So he knows. So like they don't want to know that they're still doing that and they're doing it to other people that it's crucial for the captain and the queen's supporters or the not knowing they're the, still the queen's supporters to obfuscate that, that connection, that information, because Zanxia is the worst possible person because she did to Zanak a fraction of what Zanak has done to every other planet it's encountered. One other thing that I don't think we really discussed is that um, this is season 16, which is the key to time and how this was actually a narrative arc season where every episode fed into uh, a progression. Essentially uh, the doctor and uh, uh, his companion were to go uh, basically going to find the key to time, which was uh, a thing that the, uh, Wake Guardian that we see in the uh, first episode of the season shows up and puts this adventure on. That's how uh, Lady Romana ends up on uh, the TARDIS because she's there to help um, Tom Baker's character of the uh, Fourth Doctor. But basically, we get to see episode, we get to see the second and the third uh, episodes of the or not episodes, but the second and the third serials out of this uh, season. And there are six of them corresponding to the six uh, um, keys to time. And um, I think what's kind of interesting is that you're seeing a narrative arc that you don't normally see, well, you certainly didn't see in American or Canadian um, television of the time. I mean, basically it was like Star Trek, the original series, something happens, whatever, it's forgotten. Uh, with this, there is a progression going on to the final episode where they finally, um, they finally get all the parts of the keys to time and decide to do something with it. And then, in fact, uh, they meet someone who becomes Romana too, Princess Astra. So um, to me, what is really interesting about the season, this is probably the most mature writing in many cases. Uh, and some of this is due to, I guess, Douglas Adams, uh, of the entire series up until... Um, the, um, the new whole series that's starting with uh, Eccleston. But in the original series, this is probably some of the best writing and it's also probably some of the uh, most coherent uh, writing that, we have, that we've seen. Well, at least, I, at least in my opinion. I, I would very much agree there. Douglas Adams' role as script editor in the Tea to Time season is more important than his role as screenwriter for two of the episodes because the more you link the episodes together, the more heavily they have to be rewritten by the screenwriter of uh, the script editor so that they join. So Adams is brought on as the script editor in part because they can recruit him because they're giving him a pile of narrative authority that comes from the serialization. But I would suggest that in fact, it was really, if you, if you go back to 1970 and they go to the 26 episode season from the 48 episode season, where everybody's just like in motion all the time, filming as fast as they can and bumping into props. And then you get to 1970 and they go, all right, we're cutting the season length by nearly 50%. Starting in 1970, um, you have seasons of linked episodes pretty much every alternate year. Um, you have um, season two, right, is uh, season uh, 1971 is all the master. 
1973 is a single plot that starts with Carnival of Monsters and takes us all the way to the Green Death with different elements connecting from each show so that the Doctor's using the blue metabilis crystal from episode five in episode 22 to hypnotize somebody, that the war between the Ogrens and the Daleks and all, all that stuff. So you have that pretty much in alternate seasons. Tom Baker's first season is an all-connect season um, yes. that, uh, that does the same thing. What I would, what I, so what I would, I would pull out here is this is the last time they do it until they shorten their season length again. Mm. The last time they make a whole season, a series of interconnected stories, because they do a few like groups of three and groups of four stories together. So the when the when the black and white guardians come back, they do. 12 of a 12 episodes of a 26 episode season in yep. a series of connected stories and the same is true in um in a few in a number of other davison and uh stories but it's not until they shorten the season length to 14 episodes that you get a fully connected season again in 1986 with key to time and so as oh, no, 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 um you're talking about uh, in the 1980s. Uh, sorry, Trial of the, Time Lord. Uh, the Trial of Time Lord. Yeah, yeah. Right. So Trial of a Time Lord is the next time they will connect all the episodes in a season, and it's only because they've cut the season length by 50% again, or nearly 50% again. Um, so one of the things that, um, so you go, well, how are, how, why did they age out of this? Why do they stop doing this? Um and how is this, how does, how can we compare this to the other fully serialized seasons? And what I would suggest is that um, this is almost like a meta serial. Like the key to time could be anything. It could be anywhere. It's, it's a little bit like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. They're directly going, okay, this is the MacGuffin people. This is the MacGuffin. We don't know what it'll be or where it is, but we promise you one every show and there actually doesn't need to be anything else those shows have in common except generating the MacGuffin in their final episode that they there's tremendous flexibility you get a sense of connection but you can do pretty much anything as long as the sensor is touched to the uh, key to time uh in the final episode of the of the uh, of the story and you compare that to um, the, uh, the second of these seasons in 1973 that begins with Carnival of Monsters and it's all connected by details and objects. Um, so the only thing that really connects Carnival of Monsters to um, Empire in Space or what is it? Something in Frontier in Space. The only thing that connects uh, Carnival of Monsters to Frontier in Space is the fact that the fear-producing weapon makes Joe remember the monster from Carnival of Monsters. Uh, the only thing that connects the Green Death to uh, the earlier part of the season is that the, the Doctor uses a Metabilis crystal. Um, so it's interesting like, I actually feel that none of them have a really strong story connection per se, 
but that they but that they use different linkages. Uh, they they use a kind of meta linkage with uh, the key to time that um, I think really you know I've been talking about the aristocrats a lot lately, but uh, I, uh, I I I I'll, I'll reference it again um, as long as you touch the sensor to the key at the end, that part is just the aristocrats. Uh, everything up to it, you can do whatever you want, really. Yeah, but they, but it also they do have, uh, they do have a reason for arriving on each planet beyond yes. just um, the TARDIS has decided to take them there for some reason that they'll eventually figure out. Like they actually have a, an ulterior motive for each time they arrive in a new place, which they don't usually do. Yes, there's a purposefulness to the characters um, in uh, in this. Like they, they do have a job. It, it, yeah, isn't it also in this series because each episode they're searching for this key, each episode we're reminded that uh, at the moment um, the doctor is doing the bidding of somebody else more powerful than him and that he's just a he's running an errand for somebody else or he's on a quest for somebody else. Yeah. Rather than deciding himself, I feel like going to Metabulus 3 today to look at a crystal. I don't have any agency anymore. I'm being told what to do by this infinitely more powerful person. Well, you've set me up perfectly, Michael, because I wanted to ask people, compare to Genesis of the Daleks. Ah... Because there, um, the doctor is an agent for someone else who has commanded him to do something as well. And I think there are very interesting differences and similarities between the Time Lord who appears out of the fog called, clad entirely in black um, to tell the doctor to exterminate the Daleks from history and the White Guardian, who if you haven't seen the Reboss operation, is drinking a uh, really complex girly drink in this crazy cocktail glass next to a swimming pool wearing a huge white hat uh, <laughs> who, who instructs the doctor on this, this new mission to save the universe. Yeah, I mean, you do get the feeling that the doctor generally thinks that the quest is probably a good idea and He's a little less ambivalent about taking orders from the White Guardian than he is about taking orders from the Time Lords, I think. Yeah, I think, uh, I very much think that Douglas Adams rewrote that. I think you're quite right, Jonathan, that um, that the part of the Reboss operation where the White Guardian appears is probably all Douglas Adams. It's just, it, it, it would just have been too serious otherwise. Well, there's a lot of, of, you knew a lot of Adam's bibliographical work with this. I mean, mm -hmm. the pirate captain is clearly prosthetic Vogon gels. Yes. <laughs> yes. This an earlier iteration. The same character. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, the thing about Douglas Adams is, you know, he probably might have, he might have ended up like Tom Robbins were it not for like the writer's block and the suicide. Um we probably would have got tired of him. He had actually quite very few things to say, but he said them awfully well. 
and it, you know, it's sort of they sort of feel like them. Easter eggs in here, where you get these little bits of of this and that. I'm sorry, I've forgotten where Pendragonus Five shows up. In in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Which one is it? I, I just uh, it's just it's it's a it's a passing reference, but I believe it's where one of the components of the Pangalactic Cargo Blaster comes from. <laughs> so presumably you can't make them anymore because that planet has now been squished <laughs> yes okay so um i i just want to check in with folks who have not uh spoken yet um edward uh uh your take on uh on our our two uh, stories tonight um, well, I don't know. I enjoyed them. Um, I don't remember the the Ribos episode setting this all up. So yeah, the Ribos operation. I it's actually really good. I just it's not as good as everything else that season. So you find yourself rewatching a lot of. Um, this season, and it's hard to go to the Reboss operation, even though it's lovely. It has a lot in common with um, um, with the some of the funny things about Talons of Wang Chang, because um, it the performances are done in a very vaudevillian tone. Um, it's uh, um, it's it's very uh, yeah. There's a there's a real vaudeville feel to it. And it's this show that reminds you that really most people who appear in Doctor Who are just like some kind of greasy Victorian figure, either an impresario or a prospector or, um, you know, some sort of minor villain. Uh, so Rebus Operation um, is, it's a really small story, really small planet, um, but it's it's mostly just a celebration of these sort of vaudevillian performances of silly men in fur coats. Uh, but it does begin with this sort of surreal uh, poolside consultation with the White Guardian. And I, I think uh, Joyce steers us well in, in the Imperial Guard being like a new kind of loser minor villain um, <laughs> that... Uh, that, that finally there are bad guys with red shirts uh, to think in Star Trek terms. Um, so yeah, the, the shearing, yeah, there are a number of ways that uh, the, the show is of course trying to run from Star Wars because the Philip Hinchcliffe, right? With Genesis, the Daleks, there's, there's still this sense like we've got enough of an effects budget. We can kind of keep up. And then Star Wars happens mm -hmm. and there's just total despair. It's like, no, we're not keeping up. There's no possibility of keeping up even slightly. So we have to hang this on, uh, on something else uh, and not, it not be incredible effects or monsters. No, it's, um, well, and yeah, there's all kinds of shitty stuff happening in America. They're about to air the first season of Buck Rogers as a um, as a, a, a theatrical next year. release. Yeah, yeah, in '79, and 
that has got to be one of the worst things ever. I'm not even limiting this to film. Like it's worse than the Irish potato famine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, here's the thing that pissed me off in both Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. I got to see them in the theater and like two weeks later, oh, it's free on TV now. Because <laughs> it was, you know, uh, they were basically doing, that's how they were promoting the TV series back in the late 1970s. Because and they were, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Joy. Just um, refresh my memory. Just how long did Battlestar Galactica last? Because I just have this memory, this sort of faint memory of it passing through in like a season or two. But surely it lasted longer than that, or or was it really just that? Brief? Sort of. Season, one so, yeah. So it had a full season in seventy eight, seventy nine, and of course, uh, in the when it was, when the premiere episode happened on Morsadatin and. Nach uh, Begin uh, had the audacity to sign a peace treaty in, in Washington. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, well, the the agreement beforehand. So that was in September of seventy eight. Uh, so it went from September seventy eight until um, sometime in April of seventy nine, and then there was a second uh, gasp called Battlestar Galactica nineteen eighty that came out in January nineteen eighty. So they had it wasn't exactly the same series. So it. I guess the original had maybe one and a half years of episodes. And the original series was highly dependent on shots that had been taken in the movie that they had to recycle. So they didn't have all the models that Lucas did. Uh, they didn't have access to the models. So all the space scenes had to be cut out of the original film and redeployed episode after episode. Now, of course, uh, from the incarnation of me that uh, Nancy uh, met, um, I uh, was uh, recognized as an expert on Battlestar Galactica and appeared on a number of very silly panels where I met the current federal minister of natural resources uh, for the first time along with Ed the Sock, while I sat shirtless in a waiting room with um, feminine hygiene products duct taped all over my body. So Battlestar is like, that's one of those courses where I, I, I shudder to teach it. I feel I've, I've said all I need to, I, uh, uh, but I, I'm gonna put up some links for those who uh, uh, might enjoy the insanity of, uh, that time uh but yeah the thing was nobody could equal star wars right there just no. wasn't um that on the one hand doctor who was like one of the first shows to throw up its hands and go we've got to get out of this game where we can't win it we're not going to win on effects we're going to cut effects more and we're going to invest in travel and guest stars that was their response to star wars and that's what you see in 78, 79, 80. Guest stars, script writers, and locations. And uh, um, know what little money there was for models and uh, the effects just really uh, dried up. You also don't get any uh, really new or uncanny monsters for quite a while. The monsters have costumes that touch you primarily by being allegorical of things rather than uh, trying to depict the monster itself even. 
Um, we, uh, we really see that with uh, Horns of Nyman, where they're going with the mythological resonance around the idea of the Minotaur, state of decay. They go with the mythological resonance around the vampire. They don't invest in the costumes or the effects. Yeah. The funny, the funny thing about yeah, this is if, with Ballastar um, Gattaca. Oh, what about the thing with Ballastar Galactica? The one good thing I can say about it is that, hey, Expo 67 makes a guest appearance as a dystopian world or a world that once was a glorified future and then it's kind of falling apart because, of course, in 1979, when they were filming in Montreal in like January of 79, it really was falling apart because Man in His World uh, really had, at that point, after the Olympics, all the money kind of went away from that. So they couldn't afford to uh, upkeep all those pavilions that in 1967 looked super futuristic. So uh, Bellstar Galactica used that uh, for their um, purposes. So um, in a way, you know, in going back to say Doctor Who, they were using what was around them to be able to actually try to kind of compete with Star Wars in the sense that they're not competing. They're going and looking for the anti-future. Yeah, you, you kind of got the feeling that they actually used a lot of, um, like they were they were basically raiding the BBC studios costume closets and reusing, <laughs> repurposing things. Absolutely. Well, like the, that's the, a... the feather costume from Stones of Blood. I'm like, I wonder if like, you know, was that from, um, I don't know. It just it just definitely seemed like something that had been made for a theatrical production and they just borrowed it for that. Like, yeah, I think that's uh, that's very much the case. They're really they're really back to the interaction with other people's sets and costumes that we associate with the 60s on the show. Uh, most, of course, dramatically with the web planet. Uh, we will run the Web Planet Challenge next year to uh, to see if, if that continues. The Web Planet may be the worst Doctor Who serial ever made. Um, however, they have fixed the sound, so it's not nearly as terrible. But essentially, it's seven episodes of people wearing bee and ant costumes running around making incomprehensible noises and bumping into parts of the set. Uh, hand gestures <laughs> and then a woodlouse appears and there's an explosion and then it's over and you don't really know what's happened uh, but uh, yeah so yeah so we associate the golden age in some ways the golden age is created by an experience of scarcity and fear but it drives the show to the highest ratings it ever has arguably the show undermined itself structurally with these ratings because what these ratings conceal is a decline in children's viewership that uh, their core audience, they're actually losing while they're getting their Julian Glover and John Cleese and Beatrix Lehman appearances that uh, the show's growing international adult viewer base wants because that's the other thing that is happening during this period, the BBC finally gets its shit together on syndication. And beginning at this point, uh, this is part of foreign aid now. 
uh, the government's full ownership of Doctor Who rolls it into the foreign aid budget. So sending episodes, uh, so sending this show to Rhodesia is, uh, is part of the, uh, the larger uh, Commonwealth foreign aid agenda. But of course, it's also one other thing. It's that's the year that the BBC Film Archives gets to control how to preserve the material because prior to this, it was the engineering. Being a former CBC engineer, we didn't give a shit about stuff. And that's why we actually had an an archive. But BBC up until 1978 was erasing shows like crazy because BBC engineering was like, oh, we don't have the space for this. Eh, we're not going to show this again. Let's go and bulk erase, uh, you know, the web planet or whatever other episode they destroyed from the sixties. Um, in fact, many of, of this doctor's episodes were only preserved because TV Ontario or some other PBS stations had the two inch quad tapes. So 1978, it's not just simply being uh, out there sending it out to um, the Commonwealth. It's, also, that the BBC archives are actually seriously going, oh, we can actually use this in the future so we can do distribution in the future or at least do something with it, not just throw it away. And the reason being is the only reason why we have Doctor Who from 1970 in color, uh, the very first Pertwee, is because it was 16 mil. It took a while to actually refine all the two-inch quads uh, for that first season before they could actually bring it all together again. Um, because at that time, the only thing that was, uh, in the archives was in the film archives was the things that were shot in the film archives. So they also changed the name of it from being the film archives to the BBC film and television archives or video archives. So yeah, that was the, those things, those things are connected, right? The idea that there is a syndicated market, not merely a rebroadcast market, uh, changes everything and is generative of this restructuring at uh, BBC once it suddenly realizes the value of the things it's sitting on, which is hard for, uh, which is a hard thing for a public corporation to know, in a way, right? This is a harbinger of austerity that the public broadcaster is being careful and strategic. Uh, it just happens to be a harbinger of austerity that was good for us. Uh, now, um, any other questions or comments? We've, we've gone 90 minutes. I know eight minutes of that was spent on my laundry, but still a decent length class. Okay, well, I'm seeing you guys in 48 hours, less than 48 hours, 46 and a half hours. So um, let's check in then. I'm going to get this thing edited. Um, I'm going to... Anyway, I'll get a rebroadcast done with no editing, and then I'll do an edit, uh, hopefully, yeah. really soon. Yeah. Sounds I good. Think... Good night, folks. All right. Bye, Joy. Alana? Bye, everybody. They also appear to be Bye. having quite a bit of fun with the, the dialogue and everything. Like, it, it's just, there's a certain, it, they're very enjoyable episodes, these ones, to watch and rewatch. Like, And you would think that... The, I mean, one of the, the curious things about that fun, though, is they weren't having that fun. That's next year. Well, that's true. <laughs> like, but the, I mean, this is the actually are getting to deliver good dialogue. And yes. Yeah. 
there's it's something that'll keep someone from rada from quitting their job because they yeah. know they're actually working with very good people even if the guy they're playing opposite is a lunatic and a misogynist <laughs> uh but um i i would say though that it's um that i think what we see in what what looks like fun to us right is people playing an adversarial game and part of the game is smiling while you play it i would put it in the category of the dozens even though the dozens is an ultimately underclass art form and mm. this is this art form is about high level class contestation so this is like a working class man who's huge and charismatic um, using all kinds of power, both good and bad, to put an upper class woman in her place and she's fighting back. Um, so one of the things, right, that the Tom Baker does not ad lib with um, anyone he likes. Ad libbing mm. is a form of aggression for him. And, but he uses that aggression against the best trained actresses the show has ever had. So Louise Jameson and Mary Tam can do that. They can hit him back. And of course his criticism, right, is that the, is not merely that the people from Rada are snobs. It's that the people from Rada are stiff and non-improvisational. So he's making that challenge and she's responding and everybody's got a smile on their face, but it, it's an adversarial game. And just like the dozens, it's good. The, the aggression is bouncing back and forth in an artistic and beautiful way. And so I would, um, uh, it's odd. I would really, I, I think the, the only film depiction of the dozens that does a good job of it for white people because i'm sure there are films that are not made or screened for us that we we're not seeing um is um uh is eight mile the end of eight mile i know we don't love eminem necessarily but that adversarial musical interplay that rap and hip-hop come out of um I think we're seeing one of the finest versions of this, but it's about the British stage and it's about the politics of class in Britain, not the politics of race in America. But mm. I would compare some of the best sort of ad lib dialogue face-offs from uh, uh, 1978 to uh, those scenes from 8 Mile. I think you might find 8 Mile more watchable <laughs> Uh, if you just pull those scenes out and contrast them. <laughs>